0: We can turn to Philippians chapter 2. Today we wrap up that chapter. Um, The current uh, sermon schedule has us wrapping up Philippians in December. So uh, I decided not to do an Advent series this year. We're doing Philippians. We're going to finish Philippians this year. So uh, it's good. All right. Twenty five through thirty. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need, uh, for he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Let's pray. Father, thank you that this was written for our instruction, that we might endure and through the encouragement of the Scriptures have hope. As the God of endurance and encouragement, grant that we would see Jesus, the one in whom we hope, through the Scriptures this morning that the Spirit would enable us to trust in Him as He is presented to us in the Scriptures. And we ask this in His name. Amen. Yeah. We live sort of in a strange time and in a strange place. Where I, When I grew up, there was gambling in one place in America. That was Vegas. And then it was Atlantic City. But now, here in Arizona, we can go all over the place and gamble. And people risk their money on the hopes of more money. But people don't only risk money. This week I was on Facebook and saw an advertisement, I guess it was, or someone had put it up. A place called The Devil's Pool, which was really interesting. It overlooked... Victoria Falls in Zambia, and so this is a tourist location, and during the, uh, during the summer months when the water is lower, there is this ridge of rock at the edge of the falls, and so you can dive into the pool, and you can swim right up and be prevented from going over the falls, and you have a bird's-eye view of the falls, but still, my heart says, too great of a risk. <laughs> one of our friends went to new zealand uh, which is the home of bungee jumping apparently and did one of the famous bungee jumps maybe it was because she saw that uh, documentary on the making of the lord of the rings but she went and the thought of diving off of a bridge with just a rubber band around me just does not appeal to me that seems to be too great of a risk This week, many of you may have heard about the man who scaled Al Capitan at Yosemite State Park. And for those who don't know, it is a uh, 3,000-foot sheer cliff that he climbed without a rope, which sounds a little too risky for me. Okay, You'll notice a theme here, risk. But when we look at this text, one of the things that stands out to me... About this text, and about this person, Epaphroditus, was risk that he he took risk, and so it kind of makes me think about us and is is the gospel worth taking risks for that 's really a good question for us to start to ask: what kind of risks are worth taking for the sake of the gospel and the first question that really comes as I, as I looked at this text is what type of person actually takes risks for the gospel? Because apparently not everybody takes risks for the gospel. Paul says here, beginning off, that it is, he thinks it's necessary for him to send Epaphroditus to them most likely bearing this letter from Paul and Timothy to the Philippians. In other words, Paul can't wait until Timothy can go see them. Paul is going to send this with this guy named Epaphroditus, about whom we know very little, because this is the only place in the Scriptures where Epaphroditus is mentioned. However, it is significant that he's mentioned here in chapter 2. Because as we look at the life of Epaphroditus, as, as Paul has described it, the events that, that Paul brings to the forefront, we see that Epaphroditus is a second example of someone whose life has been remade and patterned after Jesus, which indicates that to the Philippians, once again, okay, this can happen what I've been talking to you about from the, in the beginning of this letter, the, that idea of, of, of having other people's interests in addition to your own and shaping your life on that reality of the Holy Spirit working in you to will and work. God's good pleasure. This can happen because it happened not only in the life of Timothy, but Paul says essentially, wink, wink, this happened in the life of Epaphroditus. Who is he? Well, we don't know a lot, as I said, but we do know that his name is a variant of the name Aphrodite. So therefore, okay, one, he's Greek, or he's a Gentile. Two, his family likely worshipped the goddess Aphrodite, He didn't have the advantage that Timothy had uh, Then growing up within a a godly family. He grew up in a godless, heathen family. And one of the things we do know about the worship of Aphrodite is is that we we know this from excavation of tombs uh, with um, murals that are up, is that they included temple prostitutes. And so he comes from a debaucherous sort of background. And so he seems to be someone who would be least likely on Paul's list of great men of the gospel. Okay? He was part of the crooked and twisted generation that Paul talks about in verse 15. Until Paul showed up bringing the gospel to Philippi. And then not only did he believe the gospel, but we would, we have to believe that the gospel changed him. That not only was he declared to be righteous through his faith, but we see that Jesus began to transform him, the Holy Spirit working to, to reshape him according to the pattern of Jesus that Paul talks about in the servant hymn here to such a degree that when Paul describes this man, he calls him my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier. Such was the impact of the gospel of Jesus Christ upon this particular person that Paul could say these things with a straight face and the people who received the letter would believe them because they knew Epaphroditus. They wouldn't hear that and go, Who's he talking about? They would remember their brother who once was amongst them and would remember that, yes, this is true about him. He has a status, he is Paul's brother. His relationship to Paul was a little different than that of Timothy's. Remember, Timothy, and you know, he, he worked like a son with his father with Paul, but we see a different a different sort of relationship, almost a peer-to-peer relationship of Epaphrodites to Paul. They're brothers. Uh, they, they've both been adopted through Jesus Christ because of the gospel, because of Jesus bearing our sins and giving us his obedience. But we see in this term not only their family, but the idea of connectedness, an intimacy of relationship. I have two adopted sons. They're brothers. And they act like it. (laughs) And usually it's good. Paul recognized this man as his brother. He did not kind of say, well, he's a Gentile who's saved by the skin of his teeth. No, he's my brother, though I am a Jew who has come to full faith in the Messiah. These two brothers worked with one another. It was not one working for the other, but Paul saw this man as basically his co-worker, not someone whom he lorded it over because, you know, Paul's the apostle, Who's this Epaphroditus sort of guy? There was an equality in their service, quite unlike what we saw, if we remember back in the Old Testament in Genesis, Joseph and his brothers, where Joseph told his brothers what to do. Here, the brotherly tie resulted in, in peers working together, not one under the other. But not only were they brothers, not only were they fellow workers, but they also soldiered together. And so uh, here they are in the midst of conflict. Uh, Paul, again, is in prison because he believes that Jesus is the resurrected Messiah. And Epaphroditus joins him. In this context. Now, he's not in prison himself, uh, but he's not afraid to be associated with Paul. He's not afraid to work with Paul. He has entered the fray with Paul. Paul says something similar in 2 Timothy chapter 2. He encourages Timothy, who at times could be timid, to share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Paul understood ministry as engaging in conflict. Uh, Not between nations, not between tribes, not any of that, not with weapons, but a conflict between religions that is worked out in the realm of truth. The author of Hebrews in a similar context mentions that we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but those who have faith and preserve their souls. And so faith meant that Epaphroditus, as well as as Paul and Timothy, did not shrink back from the, the dangers that were presented to them because they believed that Jesus was Lord, but rather they engaged those conflicts and pressed on because their faith made them courageous in the midst of danger. And so ministry takes place in this context of spiritual co- conflict. There's danger to be had if you're serious about bringing the good news of Jesus Christ to other people. And so be prepared for trouble. Anticipate the reality, but that doesn't mean you shrink back from it. But you press, in a sense, into it. And so we see a quick picture of Epaphroditus as a man who is mature in his faith, who is engaged in ministry, and and is willing to take risks for the king that he loves. We see this in that reading that we had from Second Samuel of the three mighty men. Why did they go to the well in Bethlehem? Was it because their king ordered them, or did they loved their king? It was because they loved their king they were willing to enter into conflict on his behalf to meet his needs. And they were honored for their sacrifice, for their risk. What we see in Epaphroditus, just as we saw again in in the life of Timothy, is that Epaphroditus reflects the pattern of Jesus who entered into a crooked and twisted world in order to serve, even if it meant his death. And for Jesus, it did mean his death, So that our sins could be forgiven, but for Epaphroditus, it would possibly mean his death so others could be forgiven, not by his sacrifice, but because, of course, of the telling of the sacrifice of Jesus. Paul continues his brief description of this man because they knew him. He was your messenger or apostle, not in the technical sense but in the general sense, the one who was sent by them to Paul to minister in a priestly sense, that word is often used in priestly activity, to Paul's need. In other words, they, the Philippian church sent Epaphroditus to Rome. To remember? This is not a flight. This was a hard journey. In that day and time, they sent him to Rome in order to minister to Paul, to serve Paul. Okay. As a prisoner, he is dependent upon others to provide for his physical needs. Were, uh, you had a cot, but you didn't have your three squares. right? Someone had to provide you with food. And so here comes Epaphroditus with a gift for Paul so that he has food and other necessary provisions while he's being held in time for his trial. Okay. He brought Paul, he was part of the team that brought Paul this financial gift because recognizing um, most likely what we see in 2 Corinthians 8 is true here. Uh, as well, in Second Corinthians eight, we see that a group of men went from was going to go from Corinth to Jerusalem to bring the gift. You didn't want to trust it to one man for two reasons. One was accountability, and two was safety. I mean, do you really want to send a man on a journey um, like that with no protection? for that length of, of time, with thousands of dollars, so to speak. You wouldn't do that. And so, uh, most likely Epaphroditus was not the only one who traveled from Philippi to Rome uh, for Paul. Okay. But there's also a question of when he got there, because there's also the, the, the he provided what lacked in their offering, was he intended to stay and work so that he could provide for his own needs as well as provide for the needs of Paul while he's in prison. And so it's very likely that Epaphroditus not only went to Rome with a gift, but Epaphroditus himself was part of the gift. That he would ply his trade and that he would continue the ongoing support of Paul while he waited for his trial. And so Paul is not sending him back because he's useless. Rather, it's like Onesimus. He's sending him back despite the fact that he is useful. It is a sacrifice for Paul to send this man back to the Philippians. But what we see here is that gospel-shaped people are willing to serve in dangerous ways and in potentially dangerous places. So as I read this text, there's another question that comes to my mind. Maybe it comes to yours. What is worth risking for the gospel? We all define acceptable risk. I'm not a gambling man. I don't trust myself. I don't go to casinos. I think I spent $1 in the Las Vegas airport once, just out of curiosity. And they quickly chased my children away because they were too close. (laughs) <laughs> We're such legalists at heart. But some people set a limit. They know what they can lose, and they go in the casino with only that, and they're able to maintain self-control and only spend their 250 and if they gain some, they're great and happy. If not, oh, well, it's 250 I can handle that loss. Some people take acceptable risks by playing football, knowing that they might end up with CTE or perhaps get paralyzed But like Bird, but... They play nonetheless. We all define that differently. There are risks that you would take that I never would, and there's risks that I would take that you never would. Maybe you're one of those people who just can't wait to climb El Capitan without a rope. Have at it. I'll pray for you. But ministry has risks always has, always will. The reason Paul sends him back gives us some insight into this. Paul sent him back with the letter because they had heard, presumably from someone who had had traveled to Rome with Epaphroditus and had gone back, they had heard that he was ill and not just that he had the sniffles, but he was near to death. Now, Paul says this three times in this paragraph. So let's not think that Paul was just exaggerating it a little bit. Paul was there, and three times he says he almost died. That's a great risk. He risked his life. Not $250, Okay, Not a broken leg. He risked his life. We're not sure exactly when he got sick. Some people think it was on the journey to Rome. Some think it was after he got there. Uh, but presumably, as I mentioned, a companion uh, likely returned and had told the, the church back in Philippi. And, and, and notice this, though. Epaphroditus was distressed he was concerned about the interests of the people back in Philippi. And this word distressed is a serious word. It's the same word that we see of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane in Mark 14 and Matthew 26, where Jesus was greatly distressed and troubled. And we know what that led Jesus to. His weeping in the garden. The sweat that seemed like drops of blood. It was, they were so big. Jesus crying out, if there's any other way, but not my will be done, but thine. That's the kind of distress, so to speak, that Epaphroditus was experiencing. He longed to see them precisely because he considered their interest. He wanted them to know that he was okay, that though he had nearly died, now he was fine. We know again that it was life-threatening. We see again the second time, he nearly died for the work of Christ. He was mostly dead, It's one way we might put it. But again, why did he come near death? It was not for fun, it was not for the challenge, it was not for money, not to get a promotion but for the work of Christ, uh, pointing to a vocation that had been given by Jesus for him to do on Jesus' behalf. He went on a mission, so to speak, for Christ because Christ sent him. And so he didn't didn't understand this simply as the church of Philippi sending him, but he understood this in terms of Christ is sending me to Rome. And therefore I go gladly for my king who loved me enough to come and rescue me from my sin. It is a sense of calling that he experienced. That the risk that he undertook was connected to his calling in Jesus Christ. As we prayed, Andrew Brunson is going to have another hearing later on this week. Why is he imprisoned? Because he had a calling from Jesus Christ to go to Turkey and plant churches. To make Jesus known and to see sinners come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. And part of the risk when you go to Turkey if you're a missionary, is that you might end up in prison. Not for trafficking in drugs like the famous movie that was around when I was a kid, but because of the gospel. And he accepted that risk and thought it was worth it for the sake of Jesus. Epaphroditus accepted the risks of ministry, Because I believe he believed what Paul says in the first chapter of this letter. That to live is Christ and to die is gain. And you have to believe that if you're going to risk your life doing ministry. You have to believe that the work you're you're doing matters because it's Christ doing his work through you, but you also have to believe that to die is gain, meaning you haven't lost anything if you lose your life in the course of ministry. If you don't believe that, you will never risk anything for Jesus. You'll always be wanting to hold back something from the one who didn't hold back anything. Remember this Jesus, who left heaven, who left privilege, who left glory and emptied himself becoming a not a not so rich guy, but becoming a slave. Jesus, who humbled himself and was obedient, uh, not just to take out the garbage, but was obedient up to and including the cross. That's the Jesus we follow, and that's the Jesus who bids a man to come and die, as Dietrich Bonhoeffer said. The Christianity of Paul is not a spectator sport. It's one that calls a man to die. Because Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him pick up his cross daily and follow me. We see it's not only in the life of Epaphroditus, not only in the life of Paul, but we see in Romans 16, he says, "Uh, greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ, who risked their necks for my life. You know, I don't know how many times I've read Romans 16 and that never caught my attention. That turn of a phrase that that, that is here, who risk their necks or risk their lives. They love Paul that much because they love the gospel that much that it seems normal. That's what I'm talking about doesn't seem radical. It seemed normal. Just like if you were on the battlefield, you would risk your neck for your fellow soldiers. just comes naturally, I would imagine. I've never been in that situation. We see that all of the apostles but John died as martyrs. We see uh, David Brainard, one of the missionaries to the Native Americans in New England, dying of smallpox, but the reason he died was for Christ. We see William Carey, who crossed from England to India and basically lost his whole family. And so that he could let people know of a savior from sin. So what's our threshold? What are we willing to risk? What are we willing to risk for the people who are around us, whether it's our church neighbors, our neighbors by our house, our coworkers? There's that question. Why didn't Epaphroditus die? Paul is clear about that as well. God had mercy on him and me also. Uh, We don't know if it was a miracle. Uh, We don't know if it was the use of means. But either way, Paul points it to God, that God did this. God had mercy, whichever way he chose to display it. We see in Psalm 103, verse 2, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all of your diseases. Similar to what we see in Isaiah 53, that by his stripes we are healed. And in this case, it happened on an earthly timetable, not the eternal timetable. We have to remember that God is rich in mercy and that in this case for Epaphroditus, he answered the prayers of Paul and others who knew that he was sick with a yes, that he was healed. And as a result, Paul is spared sorrow upon sorrow. It's bad enough that he's in prison, but God spared him the grief that he would experience at having someone not just risk his life, but lose his life in serving Paul. And so we see that the God's richness of mercy kind of overflows. I think of Ken Gilbert, that God had mercy on him, but it was not just on him. It was also on his daughters and upon other people that they did not have sorrow upon sorrow. Kara has a difficult life already. God spared her additional sorrow, by having mercy upon her father. His mercy overflows its cup, and it spreads like a flood of blessing to others. But God is trustworthy. And so as, as we think about risk for the gospel, we have to remember he is merciful and trustworthy. So the work of the gospel is worth risking even our lives people have risked their lives for far worse, oddly enough. a third question that comes to my mind as I read this text, uh, how how should we respond to those who risk for the gospel? You see, Paul seems to be pretty concerned about uh, Epaphroditus' reception by the Philippian church. Otherwise, why would he mention it? And I think of some of the missionaries I know who returned a little early from their service, and usually some kind of question arises of kind of, what went wrong? Is there some sin that we don't know about? Why are you back here already? And there can be a lot of suspicion that sort of comes up from this, a suspicion um, that can dampen people's joy because you know what? You're not supposed to be back here yet. There's work to be done out there. And so Paul therefore says to them, receive him in the Lord with all joy. It was to be a celebration. It's similar to what we find in the parable of the uh, prodigal sons. Um, I mean, he didn't go to Rome to sin, but they feared his death. The son who was Dead has returned to them alive, and, and they should be uh, slaughtering fattened calves and rejoicing that Epaphroditus has been restored to their fellowship. They should be singing praises. They should be receiving him well. Paul does this a lot. We see again in Romans 16 a similar thing. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at uh, Crencia, uh that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you, for she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. And So he tells them, welcome this woman who pos- possibly was bearing the letter from the, the region of Corinth to Rome. Welcome her in a worthy way. We see that receive him in the Lord reflects their their mutual union with Jesus Christ as foundational to their welcoming of him. He is part of them. His illness is not a sign of, of failure. Anyone could have gotten this disease. And so they should not look down at him as though somehow um, perhaps he sinned to uh, get this disease. But they were to rejoice uh, when he returned to them. And they were to rejoice that for a time he was able to serve Paul on their behalf. Not only were they to receive him with joy, but Paul instructs them to honor such men as Epaphroditus, honor people who risk their lives for the gospel. And so we see again the mighty men in uh in Samuel 23. Uh, not only the three that went down for the water, but we see the others. Uh, that's why I wanted to continue with that passage. It talks about how they got a name. They got a reputation. David honored them. Those were the type of people, the one who, ones who risked everything for the kingdom of Christ. Those were the ones worth celebrating. The people that a community honors reveals that community's priorities and values. And so if you honor people who risk everything for the gospel, what you're really honoring is the gospel. If if you're honoring people who risk everything for Jesus, what you're really honoring is Jesus. And so who does... I'm going beyond Desert Springs, okay? But who does the church in America hold up? Who who do we hold high? Uh, That's really the idea of honoring, holding up someone on a a pedestal, so to speak. Uh, And I think, sadly, we tend to exalt successful business people. We exalt celebrities and athletes. And, and what happens is that we often just lead to their own destruction in some ways. Some of you older folks might remember B.J. Thomas, the singer. B.J. Thomas became a Christian. And suddenly he was the darling of the evangelical community. And great pressure was put on him, basically, to be a, a, a prominent Christian. And he'd just become a Christian. Why put such burden on a man Let him grow and mature. And it ruined him in many ways. And that's unfortunately what we do when we we sort of exalt people for the wrong reasons. It was about his stature and prominence. It wasn't about his life for Christ yet. Do you understand the difference? And so we we are to honor people who live according to this pattern that that Paul lays out for us. That Jesus lived, and Paul lived too. So that we're actually honoring Jesus, and that those are the people that Jesus uses to enrich the lives of those around them. They're they're not trophies for us to kind of you know applaud ourselves over. And so as we think about all of this, what we, I think, end up seeing is that Jesus makes us people who are willing to risk all for the gospel through the gospel. That's really what is laid out here. And so as we consider Epaphroditus, we need to keep a few things in mind. One of which is that a debaucherous background doesn't mean that you can't be a mature Christian. Never use your past as an excuse for the reason why you're not a mature Christian. The gospel changes real people who have committed real sins. And a lot of you grew up in the church. And it's easy for those who grew up in the church to forget that. Those of us who didn't grow up in the church uh, oftentimes don't have to forget that. I mean, we we can't forget that because that's us. (laughs) We did a lot of bad things. Also remember that Jesus works by the Spirit so that, that regardless of your background, if you are in Christ, you can begin to follow the pattern that Jesus established. You can be godly. You can love others well. You can consider their needs and interests because God is at work in you to will and work according to that purpose revealed in His Scriptures. We can love God more than life itself, and we can take risks for the spread of the good news of Jesus Christ. And so, in order to do that, first we partner with Jesus. By faith in Jesus as our Savior. And then he sends us out. And he also makes us partners with those who are called in the same work. So honor people who give selflessly despite the danger that they might experience. Because Christians are not people who avoid risks, but they are people who take Particular risks for the right person and the right reason, and that person is Jesus, and that reason is his gospel. Let's pray. Father, in a sense, this is, uh, can often strike us as something radical, but it's not intended to be. It's supposed to be situation normal. That whether we're like a Paphroditus path, and go or not, it really isn't the issue. It's really the issue of, of, are we sacrificial now? Are we willing to take risks in the places you have put us? And we ask that your spirit would be at work in us so that we would um, take risks in the places you have put us. And the people that you've put us next to. Continue to make us like Jesus. To recreate us in his image. To the praise of your glorious grace. Amen.